and welcome back to the Death with Dignity podcast. My name is Andrew Flack, and today, in episode four, we are joined by Dr. Lynette Cedarquist of the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Cedarquist is a pain specialist and also the director of the Medical Aid in Dying program at UCSD. Today, she shares why she chose to be involved with the Death with Dignity process her experiences as a professional, and what direction we might be heading in regarding body autonomy issues and movements within our society. As always, we thank you for listening. We encourage you to reach out with any questions or comments, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Well, cool. Well, thank you for being here today. Yeah. Introduce yourself, friend. Tell us who you are. All right. So I'm Dr. Lynette Cedarquist. I'm a faculty physician at University of California, San Diego. And I've been here for probably about 26 years. Cool. So long, most of my career. Yeah. Very cool. Mm-hmm. How'd you end up out here versus um, like some of your earlier experiences? <laughs> How did I end up in San Diego? Yeah. Well, um, I kind of we moved, grew up moving around a lot, so I didn't have any place that I considered hometown, and um, ended up in uh, Southern California in high school. When I went back to Oklahoma for um, undergraduate medical school and wanted to get back to California, so I came back and did my residency training in up in Fresno in the Central Valley. When I finished that, I felt like for the first time in my life, I could just pick a city where I just wanted to live. So I picked San Diego and came down here, landed a job at UCSD, and have been here ever since. Beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, as we mentioned earlier, it'd be hard to leave a place like San Diego. Pretty special area. Yeah, I still am in love with it. Yeah, absolutely. And so much you can do. You could spend a lifetime out here in, in California and do something new all the time and still not have enough time to explore it all. Yep, that's how I feel. Absolutely. So tell us about your profession here at UCSD and how you support mm-hmm. this facility in Moore's Cancer Center. So my uh, home base is uh, general internal medicine. Um. But after about five years of working in general in internal medicine, back around 1999, um, training programs in hospice and palliative medicine were just developing. So I became interested in retraining in hospice and palliative medicine at that time. So I did retraining at a large hospice here in San Diego. I got involved in doing hospice work and uh in in parallel with that i also got involved with our hospital ethics committee um ended up training as a hospital ethics consultant 
and over the years have evolved to become the director of the ethics program for UCSD. So I've done a lot of work in hospice and palliative medicine over the years. I've done a lot of work in um, uh, clinical ethics, which um, for the most part, those two areas of discipline complement each other. And so now I spend half my time running the ethics program for the hospital. Um, so those are kind of some of the roles I've taken on over the years of my career. Wow, a lot of responsibility, especially the ethics piece. That's got to mm-hmm. be so fascinating as we move forward and how times are kind of changing and we learn more about different, you know, different, uh, whether it's vaccines or medications mm-hmm. or whatever that might be. Along with that, in that experience, that goes to me pretty well and right in line with the overall topic that we're discussing today, which is death with dignity. So Mm -hmm. we're looking forward to hearing your experiences with that. I do want to ask, is the idea of hospice and palliative care, is that a relatively new thing? You mentioned how you kind of got into it in the late 90s. Um, Is this something that yeah, is it kind of a newer practice coming around during that time, or is it something we've kind of offered for a while now? It's been around for a while. I want to say it really started taking off um, probably late 70s and then into the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably when I trained in the 80s, it was becoming more widely accepted. It was still kind of a little bit of a fringe area of medicine, but uh I'd say over the 90s, it really came into the uh, mainstream of being embraced by medicine as, uh, you know, legitimate. And when you say fringe, was it considered kind of, I guess, exactly that fringe or taboo or foreign or whatever? Mm-hmm. Because it, like with something like hospice, it's from my understanding, essentially you elect to stop treating the main disease itself. So you are basically comforting that person as they um, move on and, and, uh, depart. So is it, would you say that's why it's considered, or it was at least one point considered Mm -hmm. kind of a different approach due to the nature of just stopping treatments? I think, uh, the whole concept of making decisions to limit treatments, uh, was something that really kind of cropped up in the seventies as we developed more technology to extend people's lives. Um, uh, it, at a certain point became evident that sometimes extending lives that had no quality of life, maybe people wouldn't want to do that. And so um, over uh, many landmark cases and whatnot, the idea of people being able to make the choice not to pursue further treatment um, was an evolving concept um, that initially was not widely accepted in medicine. Sure. Sure. And what drew you to this field itself? Cause it's a pretty, you know, it takes a lot to be involved in the palliative and the hospice realm. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what brought you into that, I guess, specific, uh, capacity? Um, I think I really started with my, getting involved in the ethics committee and training as a uh, ethics consultant. I had actually been exposed to this uh, during residency. I got on the ethics committee up at the hospital where I trained and became interested in this field. 
So when I came to UCSD and got on the committee and started working in the hospital, doing ethics consults, a lot of the um, cases we got involved in were really kind of life and death decision-making, oftentimes in the ICU. And then from that, I became interested in, well, what is, you know, hospice care about? What's that about? Um, And so it kind of branched off of my work in the hospital setting to eventually want to explore, you know, what it was like to take care of patients um, at the end of life and um, the hospice setting at home usually. And so it kind of went from there. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. How, um, as you progress through your career, how have some of these things changed in terms of how they're perceived? It seems like, as you mentioned, it's becoming more acceptable with things like hospice care or palliative or even something like death with dignity. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it over the period of time of my career become more in, in accepted and even embraced by physicians and patients. Um, For sure, there's still a lot of misconceptions and barriers, both on the physician side and oftentimes on the patient side of of accepting, you know, when hospice might be appropriate and when it should be brought up and discussed and considered. Um, It's, you know, still, for some people, a very difficult bridged across. Absolutely. Is that generally something the doctor will have a discussion with, with their patient? Does it come from them usually? Yeah, I think increasingly, um, you know, earlier on physicians were more reticent to bring it up as an option, but have increasingly felt more comfortable with bringing that up as an option to discuss with their patients. Um, still, I wouldn't say 100% of physicians are comfortable bringing it up. There's still reticence. Okay. And tell us about kind of the difference between hospice and palliative care, what that looks like. So the concept of hospice originally was um, focusing care at the end of life to maximize quality of life for whatever time a person had left. Um, eventually when, uh, Medicare took on pain for hospice care, they came up with the designation of, um, uh, estimating less than six months survival to, to be appropriate for hospice care. It's a little bit of an artificial, um, definition based on what Medicare will pay for, but it's, you know, been adopted as what we consider, the definition of uh, terminal illness that if a person's life expectancy is within six months, we consider that terminal. So that initially um, evolved in the hospice model. But over time, people began to realize that even patients with any kind of serious illness who have a lot of um, symptom burden, you know, a lot of maybe difficult, uh, diminished quality of life because of chronic or progressive illness, maybe need more focus on symptom management before they're considered hospice appropriate. So then the, the field of palliative care arose to move that focus on comfort and improve quality of life further upstream in people's illnesses. So the palliative care is defined as kind of symptom-focused care, 
um, at any point in a person's illness. Um, it can be something that we do, you know, concurrent with active treatment of the disease. Um, it doesn't have to be a uh, either or choice as hospice tends to be. Okay. That's, thank you for clearing that up. Cause even as a patient myself, sometimes all this stuff kind of blends together. Lots of services are offered, which is obviously a good thing as well. And then <clears throat> in terms of death with dignity and the idea of aid in dying or the end of life option act, what is your experience with that? How did you first learn of this concept and, uh, you know, about what, you know, where were you at in your career with that and how have you seen that progress over, over time? Yeah. So <clears throat> I think where we are in this country with aid and dying is kind of where we were with hospice back in the eighties. You know, it's not, it's becoming increasingly accepted, but, um, not embraced certainly by a lot of people in the medical community just as hospice was regarded uh, when it started to evolve in the 80s. Um, I think I was aware of it more in my work in uh, medical ethics because um, it was not something that was really available, so it was discussed more kind of in hypotheticals than a you know, real life fact for, for us in uh, the U.S. Um, so I kind of thought of it more kind of in hypothetical ethical debate terms, I think. Until um, when the case of Brittany Maynard came uh, to the forefront in California. Was that 2014 or so? Yep, right around there. Yeah. yeah. I remember sitting watching the news one night with my husband and the, they were on the national news talking about the Brittany Maynard case, how she had had to relocate from California to Oregon to access aid and dine. <clears throat> and I was sitting there and I turned to my husband. I said, wow, if I had an opportunity to help promote this being made legal in California, I would do that. And I was just an off the cuff comment. I always say, be careful what you ask for, because maybe within six months, I got contacted by the organization um, Compassion and Choices, saying that they were going to bring a lawsuit against the state of California to um, seek legal access to aid and dying in the state of California, and would I sign on as one of the plaintiffs in this lawsuit, which I agreed to do. So I was on the uh, original lawsuit against the state of California to try to legalize aid and dine. Our lawsuit was happening in parallel to the introduction of the End of Life Option Act bill. And um, fortunately, the uh, the bill was passed, so that our lawsuit was dropped. Um, but yeah, I kind of ended up getting involved pretty early on in California. Wow, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Good way to advocate. And what else did that require when getting involved with the lawsuit? Did it, did you have to join with any sort of court proceedings or go up to Sacramento or anything like that or get involved in that sense? Uh, fortunately, it never got that far. Sure. Um, so the, the lawyers that were taking the case had been um, participating in the court proceedings and whatnot, and we had not yet been called. Okay. So. 
And what did you notice around that time or feel were some of the barriers to trying to get something like the End of Life Option Act passed into law? Well, there's there's a lot of uh, fear and opposition out there. Um, I always liken it to uh, the debate around abortion. Um, people will be forever divided on that issue. And this issue parallels that very closely. Um, so there are definitely a lot of uh, um, opponents from the religious faith communities um, the disability communities oftentimes are opposed to uh, medical aid and dying. Hmm. Why would that be with the disability community? Would maybe fear of someone being taken advantage of or just not being... Because one of the proponents of the bill is being of sound mind and such. Could mm -hmm. it be something related to that? Or from your estimation? There, uh, I think their fear is that um, individuals... Uh, value as a human and um yeah value as a human would be ultimately judged based on their uh, perceived quality of life by others or if a person is judged to be of no longer useful in a society that society would promote um encouraging them to proceed with assisted suicide Right. And that's another big, I guess, piece to it in term we hear from some people or people who oppose it is they might consider it assisted suicide. And we've talked a little bit on this podcast about how we feel they're very different things. Um, what is your thought on the idea of assisted suicide in that term versus something like end-of-life option or death with dignity or aid in dying? Well, I think a lot of it is semantics. Um, you'll immediately know if somebody's in support of or opposed to this practice based on the terminology they use, right? So people who are opposed to this practice will always call it assisted suicide, whereas uh, proponents of um, this practice will never use the term suicide. Technically, the definition of suicide is ending one's own life. So technically, I think you would could consider it suicide. But I think there's a difference between what we would consider irrational taking of one's own life versus a rational choice. So in that way, I see it as a very different um, thing. Yeah, I agree. And that's kind of how I view it as well. Technically, with semantics, as you mentioned, yeah, it is. you are taking your own life. But one thing that we've talked about and considered when someone commits suicide, it's generally a very intimate thing. Uh, usually the individual is struggling with some kind of mental health issue, depression maybe, whatever that might be. And uh Whereas somebody, and they don't want to live is another piece. And whereas someone who is sick with a disease and has this option, it's, uh, you know, it's generally, at least from my, you know, my experience, I want to keep living. Obviously, I would like to be healthy, not doing any of this, but it, you don't have a choice. So this is another option. And it's for me 
something that would end some serious suffering and just save a lot of, you know, really poor quality of life, as you mentioned. So I, I certainly feel there's a difference between the two. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And do you have colleagues or run into people at conferences or when talking about this in a group setting or with others who do oppose it and feel strongly about it and, you know, are willing to debate or whatever about it, even oh, here at ECSD? Sure. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and are those barriers for them or I guess perspectives do you see a certain trend with it, a pattern? Is it usually related to the Hippocratic Oath or just personal, maybe religious beliefs or spiritual, whatever you want to call it? Do you notice any sort of trend? Or I think almost 100%, if you get at the root of why anybody's opposed to it, is almost always based on their religious beliefs. Mm. They might couch it in other terms, but if you get right to the root of it, I think it all goes back to religion. Yes, it is a powerful thing. And I think it can provide some definitely a lot of good for people as well. But at times, maybe it's a little. And a little I much. mean, I, I can respect the concepts of sanctity of life and to a certain extent that there can be some growth and suffering, but I don't think it's my call to tell somebody else how much suffering they should endure. You know, if a, if an ind- individual person finds meaning in suffering, I respect that, but I'm not going to tell somebody else that their suffering is somehow meaningful when it's not, in fact, for them. Right, right. And have you, as a professional and a doctor, have you witnessed that and experienced that in this field with patients who just, for whatever reason, they're just hanging on and they're not going even though they are suffering and it's a poor quality of life? Well, for for sure, when I was uh, very involved in hospice work and was working with patients that were literally on their deathbeds, I think the biggest thing that people hang on for, even when they're suffering terribly, and I still see this in the hospital too, in the ICU, is hanging on for their families. Yeah, that's something that I feel like I've heard before. And even, for example, when I was very young growing up, I had an uncle who passed away from brain cancer. And at the time, my family was living in England and we were about to come back to the States for the summer. I believe it was that was the scenario. We came back every summer and stayed at my grandparents. And my Uncle Glenn was really sick. My mom always said he was so sick, and she's almost certain that he held on just a little extra longer because we got to visit him, and he passed literally the next day. Mm-hmm. And that was something that always stuck with her and naturally myself as well. Have you experienced that and seen that yourself or been with people you've mentioned on their deathbeds or who have passed and transitioned to the next realm? And what is that experience like if you have experienced it? Well, uh, as far as hanging on for family, um, anybody that works in hospice can tell you it's not at all unusual for Um, families to be holding vigil at the bedside and the patient uh, 
is in what seems like a very prolonged um, process of, of dying, but keeps keeps going, keeps taking another breath. And then when the loved one steps out of the room, that's when they die. And there's, you know, a well-held um, belief out there that sometimes they wait for the loved one to not be in the room to for their spirit to leave. Mm. You know, there's I can't back that with science, but it's a common observation. And also, it's not unusual in hospice for that same scenario. Sometimes the hospice team will counsel the family to tell their loved one that, tell them, the dying loved one, that it's okay for you to go. I will be okay. Um, even after you pass, we will be okay. And then the loved the patient um, dies shortly after their family tells them that. Wow. Again, I can't back that with science, but that's a, these are common hospice experiences. That's powerful. And uh, at different states of consciousness, too, I would imagine with some of these individuals, maybe not as cognitively, you know, awake or aware, but mm-hmm. at some level are able to, you know, feel or understand or receive that. Yeah, it's heavy. I mean, it's heavy stuff, right? We're talking life and death. So this is uh, probably the most difficult types of conversations to have. Have you worked directly with patients who use who have used the aid and dying drug? Maybe you were there and participated or you know were there and observing and with them when mm-hmm. they actually use the medication. Um, I'm not sure if you've had that experience, but uh, if so, tell us about it. Um, so yeah, I've been with two people when they uh, ingested the medication and died. They both happened to be people I was actually close to, you know, on a more of a friendship level, which is why I was there when they chose to do this. Both experiences um, were very peaceful deaths, probably the most peaceful deaths I've witnessed um, with family at bedside. Um, Both of them, I had spent uh, time with them through the process beforehand of making the decision and going through the process and then being there the day that they ingested to be with them and the family. Um, and it was, both of them were pretty remarkable experiences. They were very uh, at peace with their decision the day that they chose uh, when it arrived. Um, they were able to have family gather, whoever decided that they wanted to have there with them. They got to say their last words, say their goodbyes, um, peacefully go to sleep, and within a few hours would pass uh, with family there, you know, in their own homes. Um, to me, these were a lot less uh, traumatic deaths to watch than what we see happening in the ICUs where people die all the time. But to me, those are the horrible deaths. Sure. Yeah, I can imagine that that would be uh, difficult in that type of setting. And that's one thing, too, that when I reflect on this whole scenario, that to me is a blessing and a positive thing. Not a lot of people can say that they pass, and when they do pass, they're surrounded by everybody that they care about and have that Mm -hmm. opportunity and that option. 
So I think you always try to look for the good, and I think that's certainly something that's comforting. How do you think these individuals know? It always seems like they just have that feeling that people kind of know when their time is coming. And I'm not sure if maybe they're, for those two individuals you spoke of, they had it like kind of marked down their calendar, if they just reached a certain point, or if there was anything that they shared where they just knew that it was time. Um, do you have any input on that or how, from your experience in hospice or with others, uh, how, how they just kind of know when it's time to go? Yeah, I mean, both of them and the other patients that I've uh, seen over the years for requesting aid and dying, it's all, you know, what they decide is going to be no longer an acceptable quality of life for them. Um, so becoming more and more uh, dependent, less active, um, you know, getting to the point where they're homebound, they need a lot of ex- uh care and these were fiercely independent individuals that for them that was not a acceptable way to live anymore Um, both of them were in their um, mid-80s so they'd had very full lives they had no regrets Um, they you know looked back on a, a full life that they were grateful for and um for them they just felt it was time to go yeah well that's got to make you smile and feel good knowing that they had a good full life Mm -hmm. I think too that's something I try to or at least spin in my own head I I do know and agree that spending a lot of time on this earth is generally how we qualify a good life but I also through my experiences, know that I'm not going to live for 80 years and that long. So um, thinking more about what you do with that time, right, and how you spend it. And I know for me, and I feel very comfortable with where I'm headed personally because I've had a lot of really cool opportunities and I have lived a full life, even though it's only been 33 years. I've done a lot of cool stuff that most people won't do in a whole lifetime. So... I think there's always different, at least I've been trying to hold on to that perspective. And you mentioned something too uh, that's I've been thinking about uh, with the family piece and how getting that permission from family is so important. And I know for myself, the biggest, one of my biggest fears was what would happen to my family when I'm gone. And that's what I was always most afraid of. And it wasn't until the last probably 12 months or so when we really started to have these conversations and discussions that I realized that they're going to be just fine. And my sisters are surrounded by great people. My parents are very strong. And I know that they'll be able to just move along just okay. And as a person in this situation, you take a lot of comfort in that. It makes it a lot easier knowing the inevitable, obviously. And I guess with that, I was going to ask, have you experienced families who have a really hard time with this whole concept, end-of-life option, and the idea of someone using a medication to end their life? Yeah. I mean, when we see a patient who's requesting aid and dying, one of the questions we ask them is, uh, 
who in your family are you going to tell and who do you want to have with you um, should you reach the point of deciding to ingest the medication? And we get a variety of responses. Some patients say, you know, well, my whole family knows they're fully supportive all the way to I'm not telling anybody my family would be absolutely opposed to this and I don't want them to know. Um, and those um, patients are experiencing added distress around that, um, feeling like they can't divulge this to their family. Um, one gentleman, I recall, had, he came in with his wife. I asked him that question. He said, I'm only telling my wife, and she's the only one that's going to be there. Um, I have a very devout Catholic family who would be adamantly opposed to me doing this, so I've not told any of them. Um, and he said, even myself, I feel a little guilty about wanting to do this because I'm Catholic background myself. So um, he was struggling with his own faith beliefs and kind of guilt around this choice. Uh, so I was able to get him connected with one of our um, palliative care chaplains to meet with that person and, and kind of work through those issues. Yeah. It, I mean, as you mentioned earlier, the religious piece can be so dominant and I can see how that could be a major barrier for some individuals. Do you find that most people come to you wanting to learn more about this idea or is it something that doctors or whoever it might be kind of you know, the topic kind of comes up as they work together. Um, yeah, sometimes patients just want more information. Sometimes they'll bring it up to their physician, especially earlier on when um, there wasn't yet a lot of buy-in to this being something that was now patients had access to and physicians weren't really excited to be being asked this, it was something that he, even if they weren't opposed to, kind of felt overwhelming and scary. And so we had a lot of patients who would bring it up to their physician. The physician would kind of gloss over the question and move on. The patient would think that they had asked their physician for this, and the physician wouldn't address it or document it, kind of just pretended it didn't happen. Right. Hmm. I literally had one patient tell me that she asked her oncologist about aid and dying, and the oncologist literally closed their eyes and said, I'm going to pretend you didn't ask me that, and then moved on. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. That was a little stunning. Yeah. Those, was that due to just their own belief on the topic? For whatever reason, they didn't want to deal with it. And this wow. was early on. Yeah, um, okay. Well, so, still, it's pretty... I think over time, more and more um, physicians have been more open to their patients bringing it up. Okay. And ethically, is that something you would get involved with or have to be involved with? I would imagine that this would be a big topic in that realm, the ethics piece. Yeah. Well, when we, when the law came into effect back in 2016, um, myself and the director of the, our palliative care service were tasked with coming up with our own internal, own internal policies around it because each hospital has to have you know, policies and procedures around new treatments. Mm -hmm. 
And so once we had completed that and established our own internal policies and uh, practices, I took it under the umbrella of the ethics program to shepherd this along and continue to to this day um, because uh, somebody needed to do it. (laughs) So I took it on under the ethics program. So you kind of oversee the End of Life Option Act here at UCSD and kind of monitor that program, essentially. Yes. It's a lot of responsibility. Thumbs up to you for sure for taking that on. That's awesome. And being such an advocate. I personally had no idea that this was an option in California. And I think I would have gotten there and figured it out at some point. But uh, it was... um, for me, as a patient, it was important to have this as an option. So it's it's uh, fascinating to think of, I guess, how this has all progressed throughout uh, my experience with the disease. And then even thinking to where I'm from, which is the Chicagoland area, and I know in Illinois they do not offer this as an option. In fact, Hasbaum was back there recently and mentioned that he was at a wedding and ran into a few doctors who shared they didn't really know much about it either. And yeah, it, it was just so surprising to that they weren't even aware. And there was, I, I, I guess they, I guess they were on the younger side, so I would think that they would know about it. But yeah, one was from like Ohio. One taught because th- this was at like a wedding, so that's why I have the sa- uh, state sample. But yeah, from Massachusetts, I think it was, from like Ohio and from the state of Illinois, they weren't really aware of it and kind of, yeah, the way they even like talked about it, they kind of talked about it more like you talk about like assisted um, suicide. Yeah, if it's not legal where you're practicing, you're probably not going to be thinking about it too much. I didn't think about it all that much other than because I was involved in ethics uh, as a hypothetical topic of discussion, but uh, most physicians in general aren't going to be thinking about it much if it's not in their state. And do you, when this all started to develop, is there a certain class or a certificate or something that a doctor has to earn to be able to be eligible to prescribe this medication? Nope, there's actually not. Interesting. There's nothing. We had a discussion early on when we were coming up with our own internal um, policies, whether we wanted to designate just specific physicians to be doing this or to let anybody, any physician that wants to participate at UCSD. And I really strongly advocated that it should be something that any physician can choose to participate because uh, in a large system like this, you're not going to find too many physicians that want to take this on as their niche. And also, we wouldn't know which uh, physicians' patients would ask them for help in aid and dying. And I think it's ideally something that a, a doctor that's already taking care of a particular patient, you know, if they're willing to opt in, can help their own patient through and not send you off to another referral. Um, I always say we have enough fragmentation of care as things are now. You know, that would just be another fragmentation in my mind. Sure, sure. And do you have some doctors here? You mentioned that they just won't touch it at all. Um, How do some doctors who are not interested in being involved with this option, especially those in the oncology field, 
how would they handle referring or helping their patient who might be interested in something like this? Mm -hmm. Will they generally refer them to another doctor or to you? How, how does something like that work? Um, yeah, either or both. Um, 90 plus percent of the patients that request this are here in the cancer center. So this is the major area. Um, and each, uh, there are different teams of oncologists. So, you know, you have the GI cancer team, the breast team, et cetera. And so each of those teams kind of knows which of their physicians is willing to participate and which ones are not. So they tend to, you know, refer to each other within a, a treatment team. Um, if it's a, another physician who doesn't have anybody they're affiliated with to refer to, they contact our aid and dine coordinators who I supervise and oversee, and we will help those patients navigate the system to find a uh, participating physician. Sometimes that's through hospice, and sometimes it's within UCSD, depending on the situation. Okay. And... I think, is it true that there's only one pharmacy in San Diego County that prescribes the medication? Pretty much. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of what I had understood when going through this process. And then they, from my understanding as well, they're essentially open 24-7 for a number you can call, and they deliver the medication basically under lock and key. Yep. And it's a combination of drugs that pretty much... Um, I know at first it's an anti-nausea medication followed by, I think, just heavy narcotics and just like a massive overdose, it sounds like. Yeah, it's what we call a cocktail. Okay, yeah. So the, the, the kind cocktail. of the protocol is that, <laughs> yeah, the patient will take the two anti-nausea medicines an hour before because it's such heavy doses of medications that, the last thing we want is to have somebody ingest all that and just throw it up because their stomach can't handle it. Right. So, you know, they uh, give instructions on what not to eat that day to make sure the patient's stomach is settled, take the anti-nausea medicines, wait an hour, and then they take a cocktail of, uh, I've lost track now, four or five different drugs uh, cocktail together, ma uh, massive doses of morphine, Diazepam, amitriptyline, now it's got phenobarbital and digoxin. So right. it's a lot to ingest yeah. all together. Yeah. And uh, of course, it, it's not a cheap cocktail either. Probably one of the more expensive ones you're going to have, huh? Yep. Yep. It's uh, upwards around, I think, 750 now, somewhere yeah. in that range. Yeah, I figure. Just put it on the card and so long, suckers. <laughs> Your last charge on your credit card. Yep. Yeah. Good luck collecting there. <laughs> so what do you think when thinking about death with dignity, what do you think or why do you feel it is more of a taboo topic? And as we move forward into the future, how do you see it changing or expanding throughout the country? Well, I, I think it is going to continue to expand throughout the country, as we've seen over the years. You know, more and more states are adopting this, and so I expect it'll probably be um, uh, universally available in the U.S. You never knew. There might be a few outlier states, but I 
anticipate that uh, again, it's gonna it's gonna closely parallel the path that abortion has taken in our country, which is why I say there might be a few outlier states because we have the states that are clamping down on abortion practices now. So, right, right. Um, and it seems like for whatever reason, there's that that trend in our world and country where, when it comes to some of the more intimate decisions a person can make, they become so politicized and and public and mm -hmm. debated. And I think that this falls right along that line as well. Yeah. I mean, the, the arguments are essentially the same at the end of life and at the beginning of life, right? The right. concept of sanctity of life, no matter, you know, uh, what quality of life, sanctity of life from the time that a, you know, a fetus develops to sanctity of life till a person's last breath. There's some people that just, you know, adopt that same concept at each extreme of life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you think that this is, or I, I was going to say, today, actually, I believe it is today, the recent... Um, I guess amendment to the bill was just signed into law. We were discussing that a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that entails? Sure. Um, so the main reason for the uh, new law is that the original law passed had a sunset clause that if it wasn't uh, passed again, it would have gone away. So they had to mm. um, introduce a new bill if we wanted to continue to have this legal in California. But in addition to kind of re-legalizing it here, um, they changed, um, made some amendments to the original law. Um, the primary changes are, the biggest one I think is uh, the original law mandated a 15-day uh, period between the initial verbal request from the patient and the second request, um, which for some people was uh, time is fairly burdensome to wait 15 days uh, for the process. Um, they've changed it now to 48 hours, which is a significant difference. Yeah, um, that is. And that change, I mean, that is a huge difference, you know, 13-day difference, obviously. And with people in that situation, and maybe you've experienced it, but is it, and everybody's different. We know that and in different stages with their disease or situation. But is it like all of a sudden they just, you know, once you turn a corner, you start getting sick, things start failing. And then it's like, wow, I'm really at that point this quickly. Maybe mm -hmm. they didn't anticipate it. Um, or is it, it maybe a situation in which they just thought, no, it's not something I want to consider. And then it, maybe they reach a certain point and decide, actually, you know what, that is sound like a good option for me. Mm -hmm. From your experience, how, uh, how does that day between 15 versus 48 hours, 15 days versus 48 hours, how great of an impact is that for people? Well, I think in some cases it'll be pretty significant. Sure. Um, uh, the idea of the 15 day waiting period was that, it was a safety feature, uh, considered to be a safety feature of the original law and, you know, saying that they don't want people to make impulsive decisions that, you know, they're just having a bad day. So they decided to end their lives um, kind of thing. They wanted to make sure it was a more enduring decision. Um, and 
the difficulty was that, as you said, um, sometimes patients maybe waited until they were really deteriorating and suffering and realized that, um, you know, they may not survive 15 days and they're suffering. They just wanted, you know, wanted it to be over. Um, sometimes um, physicians are reticent to decide that their patient has a less than six-month prognosis until the patient's condition is really advanced. So sometimes the delay is on the physician's side, too. Um, and so people are a little concerned about the 48 hours being a rushed process, uh, which I probably would be a little concerned about in some cases, but I also tell people that the reality is that the process itself still requires at least three physician visits. And so in practical terms, it's going to be almost impossible to even complete the process within 48 hours. Yeah. So in most cases, it's probably still going to take a couple of weeks sure. to complete. Um, so I, d I don't think in practice there's going to be that many patients that complete the process in 48 hours and ingest the medication and die that quickly. You're right. That makes sense. And I'm drawing a blanket where I was going with this one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was going to mention we had a chance to sit down and interview virtually Senator Susan Talamantes Eggman, who was yep. quite a big uh, figure behind the passage of this bill. And one thing she had mentioned that kind of stood out was that initially they had wanted something like a 48-hour waiting period, but they kind of had to play the politics and hardball game mm -hmm. and sell for 15 days, thinking down the line this is where we're going to kind of make that change or amendment. I just thought that was interesting because it shows how far ahead these people have to kind of think when passing some of this legislation, is so, especially something as... Uh, polarizing as the end of life option act or death with dignity. So that was fascinating. Um, I feel like we've covered a lot here. Is there anything that you can think of that you really want to share or advice to give to people who might be in this situation or words of encouragement or anything along those lines? Well, I guess the main thing I'd want to put out there is to tell people if they're um, considering this or um, want more information to not be shy about bringing it up to your physician who's taking care of you. If uh, that person is not receptive, to uh, be sure to self-advocate and find someone within the system where you're getting your care who can help you. Um, the Compassion and Choices website is a great resource for patients to find help and information, uh, especially if they're getting their care or living in an area where there's maybe not that many resources to help them. Um, that organization can provide you with those resources. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Dr. Lynette Cedarquist of UCSC. This is excellent. And as we've mentioned before, we hope that this is something that will be a positive thing for those who listen. We really appreciate your time and professionalism and opinions and just sitting down to chat with us on this subject. 
Oh, you're very welcome. I really, really enjoyed the time to talk to you. Awesome. Thank you. Hasman, did you have any other questions or anything you wanted to throw in uh, more before we a, really wrap it up? I know you always, he always seems to have stuff that I... <laughs> it's such an interesting top, uh, to, uh, topic. Like uh, the one thing that I, that I was thinking about is, you know, people, if you talk about in practical terms, like material terms, like people who are advocating for aid and dying, they're really trying to reduce uh, uh, suffering. I mean... For a person not to spend six more months in like agonizing pain to be able to diminish that or remove it completely, I mean that's a huge deal. Like that's a real thing, you know. While on the other side, they want to preserve the sanctity of life, or maybe you're thinking about suffering, hypothetical suffering, afterwards, basically after something we don't know about. And um, though I understand both sides of it, I guess like when, when you have these conversations with people that disagree. Um, how do you approach it and what have been the, what, what have the conversations been like? Well, I, I guess, uh, the conversations I've had with people who oppose it, I am always just trying to drill down to their, um, reasoning for their opposition because it, can be a little different for different people. Although, like I said, my uh, opinion is that most of them boil down to their religious beliefs, um, which I can respect. You know, I respect other people's religious beliefs for their own lives and for themselves. But um, I always have a hard time with people who want to impose their religious beliefs onto other people's lives who don't uh, adhere to the same beliefs. So... Fair enough. I don't know if that answers. Yeah, I I guess just to piggyback off this is like, do you think that there's some physicians who maybe feel like okay with Aiden dying, but there's like a social signal sent if they publicly, um, you know, advocate for it? And do you think that just 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 the stigma like around it um, worries them, and they don't advocate it just for that social reason? Yeah, I mean, I I don't think. Um, there's many of us that would want to have our names posted out there as the eight and dying physicians of the community for a lot of reasons. Partly, we don't want to alienate the patients who are opposed to it. Um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm always okay with just, um, expressing my own experience and my own perceptions and thoughts about it. I'm not going to go out and, you know, publicly, um, promote aid and dying but i i'm always support it and i think there's a difference yeah um thank you for like answering my questions i think it takes a lot of courage to do what you do and even though you're not trying to broadcast it even obviously um the title you have um i'm sure you know it advocates for for a certain position thank you yeah absolutely it's people like you who are you know, helping others and making this more accessible to people who really need it. So I, with Osborne, thank you so much. Well, I applaud you for doing the, your podcast. I think this is really great. Yeah, it's uh it's an opportunity. And I found that despite being ill, there are still a lot of good opportunities that come with this whole um, experience. So sitting here with someone like yourself is right up there with some of those positive experiences and an opportunity Mm -hmm. to learn and grow and reflect. So 
we just really value your time and experience and professionalism. Well, thank you. I'm happy again to be here. Awesome. Say that's a wrap, right? A wrap. Excellent.